we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Why has sex such an important part in our life? Though it is one of our primary urges, why has it assumed such fantastic magnitude? Hello and welcome to episode 202 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast features carefully selected extracts from the archives. Their aim is to represent different aspects of Krishnamurti's radical approach to many of the issues and questions we all face in our lives. This week's theme is sex. Upcoming themes are belief, work and joy. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust, based at Brockwood Park in the UK, which is also home to the Krishnamurti Retreat Centre. Situated in the beautiful countryside of the South Downs National Park, the Krishnamurti Centre offers retreats individually and in groups. The focus is on inquiry in light of Krishnamurti's teachings. Please visit krishnamurticentre.org.uk for more information. You can also find our regular quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on your podcast app. This helps our visibility. This week's episode on sex has four sections. This first extract is from the second question and answer meeting at Brockwood Park in 1979, titled, Why Have We Given Sex Such Importance? We're asking, why has man, woman, made this sex business such such importance. Why don't you give the same importance to love? You understand? To compassion. To not to kill. Why do you give only such immense value to sex? You're following what I'm saying? Your wars, terrors, national divisions, the whole immoral society in which you live. Why don't you give as equal importance to all that and not only to this? You're following my question. Why? Is it because sex is your greatest pleasure in life? The rest of your life is a bore. 
a travail, a struggle, conflict, meaningless existence. And this, at least, gives you a certain sense of uh, great pleasure, a sense of well-being, a sense of, you know, what you call relationship, and what you also call love. Right? Is that the reason why we are so sexually crazy? Go on, sir, answer yourselves. Because we are not free in any other, any other direction. We have to go to the office from nine to five, where you are bullied, where there are bosses over you. You know, all that happens in an office, or in a factory, or in another job, where there is somebody dominating you. And our minds have become mechanical. Are you following all this? We repeat, repeat, repeat. Hmm? We fall into a tradition, to a groove, into a rut. Our thinking is that. I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a uh, Hindu, I'm a Catholic, I worship the Pope. I, you know, the whole thing is clearly marked and we follow that. Or you reject all that and form your own routine. So our minds have become slaves to various patterns of existence. Right? So it had become mechanical. And sex may be pleasurable, and gradually that too becomes mechanical. So one asks, if you want to go very deeply into it, one asks, is love sex? Go and ask it. Is love pleasure? Mm. Is love desire? Is love a remembrance of an incident which you call sex with all the imagination, the pictures, the thinking about it? Is that love? Human relationship is pleasure, sex, conflict, hmm? quarrels, divisions, you go your way, I go my way. You follow? That's our relationship, actual relationship in our daily life. And what place has human relationship in spiritual endeavour? Obviously, the present relationship has no place whatsoever. Obviously. We are jealous of each other. (coughs) We want to possess each other. 
we want to dominate each other. And so there is antagonism between each other. Ah, one is sexually unsatisfied, therefore you go to somebody else. And in that sexual relationship there is loneliness. Right? All this, sir. And always seeking your own pleasure. Is that all love? So you disregard, put aside that thing called love. Perhaps that's the most wonderful thing if one has. And are so caught up in this vortex of one's own desire, of one's own pleasure, right? So we are always wanting not only sexual satisfaction, (coughs) but gratification in every direction, which is based on pleasure, and that we call love. For that love will we'll kill each other, right? Love of the country. Oh, please. So, when you're at the end of this, you say, why has man, woman, given this one thing so extraordinarily important? All the magazines and you know all that was happening. Why? Is it man, woman, have lost their creative capacity? Not sexual capacity. You understand? Creative capacity. To be able to see, to be a light to themselves. Not to follow anybody, not to worship any image, illusion, belief. When you put aside all that and you have understood your own petty little desires, which is your own sexual demands, gratifications, then when you see all that, have an insight into all that, then out of that comes cre- creation. doesn't mean re- painting a picture, writing a poem. That sense of ever freshness, you understand? Having a mind that is fresh, young, innocent all the time, not clouded, burdened with all kinds of memories, dissatisfactions, fears and anxiety. You know, when you have lost all that, there is a totally different kind of mind. Then sex has its own place. But when sex becomes a means of religious endeavour, 
You understand what I'm saying? Then we'll get completely bogged down. Apparently, we don't have that quality of scepticism. You understand? To be sceptical about one's own demands. To question, doubt these innumerable gurus And doubt also becomes rather dangerous, because if you don't hold it, then you doubt everything, then there's no end. It's like (coughs) having a dog on a leash. You must let it go occasionally, or often, so that the dog enjoys himself, runs about. In the same way, doubt must be kept on a leash, and also allow take away the leash. So the mind is, you know, mind being your heart, your brain, your emotion, everything active, not just directed in one direction, which is sex, sex, sex. The second extract is from Krishnamurti's third talk at Brockwood Park in 1971, titled Sex, Pleasure and Love. We should, if we could, begin with this question of pleasure. (coughs) Because that plays an important part in love. And most religions have denied, call it original sin or what you like, altogether sex. Because they said, man who is caught in sensory pleasures cannot possibly understand what truth is, what God is, what love is, what the supreme, immeasurable thing is. So in Christianity they have this extraordinary, fantastic idea of Virgin Mary. (coughs) Son of God without man and woman relation sexually. And also that exists in India as well as in Buddhism and so on. This is a prevalent religious conditioning. Right? And we, when we are going to look into this question of what love is, we have to be aware of our traditional inherited conditioning Which, help, which brings about various forms of suppression, 
Victorian and modern or permissive enjoyment of sex. So pleasure plays an extraordinary part in our life. And if you have talked to any of the so-called highly disciplined, intellectual, religious people, I wouldn't call them religious, but they are called religious, this is one of their immense problems, chastity. You may think, oh, that's totally irrelevant. It has no place, chastity has no place in modern world. And brush it aside, I think that would be a pity. Because that's one of the problems. What is chastity? So one has to, in going into this question of what love is, one has to have a wide, deep mind to find out, not just a verbal assertion. So, I don't know where to begin. Why does pleasure plays such an important part in our life. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Please, you understand, we are now inquiring. Uh, there is no assertion, uh, sex should be, should not be, pleasure should be, should not be, and all that. We're just <laughs> inquiring. Why does pleasure, in every way, in every activity of our life plays such an immense role. And therefore, while sex has such an important part in our life, though it is one of our primary urges, why does it has consumed, I don't know, such fantastic magnitude. Not only in the Western world, where it's so blatant – you don't mind my using that word? – where it's so vulgar, but also in the East and the Asia, this, it is one of our major problems. Why? And the religions, so-called religions, the priests have decried it. If you would seek God, they said, you must have – take a vow of celibacy, you know, you know all the rest. 
I know a monk in India, a very, very serious man, scholarly, intellectual. At the age of fifteen, sixteen, he gave up the world and took a vow of celibacy. And as he grew older, when I met him, he was about forty, he gave up those vows and married. And he had a hell of a time. Sorry to use that word. Because the Indian culture says that it's appalling for a man who has taken a vow to go back. And he was ostracized. You know, he went through really a very bad time. And that is our mentality, most people's mentality. And we are, I'm asking why it has assumed sex such fantastic importance. And there's the whole problem of pornography allowing Every freedom, complete freedom to read, to print, to show anything you like, therefore emphasizing or giving uh, freedom from suppression. You know, all that business going on in the world. And what has love? to do with it. And what, ha- what does it mean? Oh, Lord! Hmm? What does it mean, all this? Love, sex, pleasure and chastity. Because please don't forget that word or the meaning of that word. <coughs> For which man has given such a also great importance to lead a life of <coughs> chastity. So there it is. Let's find out why man, you, throughout ages, given sex such prominent place in life. And all the resistance against it, also. Right? I don't know how you're going to answer it. Is it not one of the factors that in that sexual activity, in that there is total freedom. No? Don't, please, let me talk it over first, and then. Intellectually, 
we are, we are imitative. Intellectually, we have ra- rather what? <laughs> Non-creative. Intellectually, we are second-hand or third-hand. We repeat, repeat what others and what we are, our little thoughts, you know. There we are not active, creative, alive, free. And emotionally, we have no passion. We have no deep interests. We may be enthusiastic, but that soon fades. There isn't a sustained passion. And our life is more or less mechanical. The office, the daily routine. So, a mechanical life, intellectually, technologically, and more or less emotionally the repetitive reactions, which is all mechanical, which is our life, and therefore this one activity which becomes extraordinarily important, naturally. No? And if there was freedom intellectually, and deeply one has passion, far, then sex has its own place and becomes quite, you know, unimportant. One doesn't give such tremendous meaning to it, trying to find through sex nirvana. Thinking through sex you are going to have complete unity with mankind. You know, all the things that we hope to find through something. So can our mind find freedom? Our mind be tremendously alive and clear, perceptive, not the perception which we have gathered from others, from the philosophers, from the psychologists and the so-called spiritual teachers who are not spiritual at all, so when there is that quality of deep, passionate freedom, then sex has its own place. Then what is chastity 
has chastity any place in our life at all? And what is that meaning of that word? Not the additional meaning only, chaste, but the deep meaning of it. What does it mean? To have a mind that's completely chaste. I think we ought to inquire into that. Perhaps that's much more important. If you have observed your mind, not as an observer and the thing observed, You understand what I mean? In which there is no division as the observer watching the mind and therefore bringing about a conflict between the observer and the observed. If if one is aware of the whole activity of the mind, doesn't one see in that the constant shaping of images. A remembrances of various pleasures, misfortunes and accidents and insults and all the various impressions and influences and pressures. And these crowd our mind. If there was a sexual act, thought, thinks about it. Pictures, imagines, sustains evocative emotions gets excited. Such a mind is not a chaste mind. It is the mind that has no picture at all, no image. That is a chaste mind. So that the mind (coughs) is always Innocent. The word innocent say, means a mind that it does not hurt or receive hurts, is incapable of hurting and also incapable of being hurt. but yet be totally vulnerable. Such a mind is a chaste mind. But when those people who have taken vows of chastity, they are not chaste at all. They are battling with themselves everlastingly. 
I know various monks, both here in West and the East, what tortures they have gone through, all to find God. Their minds are twisted, tortured. So one has to inquire into what is pleasure. Because all this is involved in pleasure, with pleasure. Where is pleasure in relationship to with love? What is the relationship between the pursuit of pleasure and love? And apparently both seem to go together. Our virtues are based on pleasure. Our morality is based on pleasure. You may come to it through sacrifice, which gives you pleasure. Resistance, which might give you pleasure in order to achieve. So, where, where is the line, if there is such a thing, as between pleasure and love? Can the two go together, interwoven? Or are they always separate? Because man has said, love God, and that love has nothing whatsoever to do with other profane love. You know, this has been not just for centuries, I mean, historically, right from the beginning of time, this has been a problem. So where is the line that divides the two, or is there no line at all? One is not the other, And if we are pursuing pleasure, as most of us are, in the name of God, in the name of peace, in the name of social reform, you know, everything, then what place has love in this pursuit? So one has to go into the question, what is pleasure? And what is enjoyment? And what is joy? The bliss 
is bliss related to pleasure. Don't please say no or yes, let us find out. We look at a beautiful tree, a cloud, a light on the water, or a beautiful face of a man or a woman or a child, the delight of seeing something really beautiful. In that there is great enjoyment, real sense of appreciation of something extraordinarily noble, clear, lovely. When you see a sunset, the vast, immense sky, and when you deny pleasure, you deny the whole perception of beauty. And religions have denied it. It's only quite recently I've been told that landscape painting came into religious paintings in the Western world, though in the China and East landscape and the painting of a tree was considered noble and religious. So, What, why does the mind pursue pleasure? Not it's right or wrong, why? And what is the mechanism of this pleasure principle? Please find out. You understand? Not repeat what the speaker is going to say, but find out. In discussing, that's what we're doing. Because if you say, well, I agree with you or disagree with you, because I prefer uh, who? Some philosopher or some other teacher, and then we're lost. But if we actually together find out, as we are sitting here now, what is the principle, the mechanism, mechanism of this whole movement of pleasure? Then perhaps we shall understand what is real enjoyment. Then what is joy and bliss in which is involved ecstasy? Is ecstasy related to pleasure? And can joy ever become pleasure? So, what is the mechanism of pleasure? Why does the mind pursue it so constantly?
you cannot prevent perception, <coughs> seeing, virile, a beautiful house, the lovely green lawn and sunshine on it, or the vast desert without a single blade of grass, and the expanse of the sky. You can't prevent seeing it. And the very seeing is pleasure, isn't it? Is a delight. Then you see a lovely face, not the just the symmetrical face, but depth in it, you know, quality behind it, intelligence, vitality. To see such a face is a marvel. And in that perception there is a delight. Now, when does that delight become pleasure? You, you follow? You see a lovely statue of Michelangelo of the Pietà. And you look at it, it's the most extraordinary thing. Not the subject, I don't know all that, but the, the quality of that. And there is, in the perception of it, there is great pleasure, great delight. You go away and the mind thinks about it, thought begins. See what a lovely thing that was. There, in seeing, there was great feeling, a quality of, you know, perception of something marvelous. Then thought recollects it, remembers it. And the remembering and the pursuing of that pleasure which you had when you saw that statue. Thought then creates that pleasure, gives vitality, continuity to that event which, which took place when you saw that statue. Right? So thought is responsible for the pursuing of pleasure, right? Please, it's not my invention, you can watch it. You see a lovely sunset and you say, I wish I could go back there and see it again. At the moment of seeing that sunset, there was no pleasure. There was, you know, you saw something extraordinary full of light and colour and depth. Then you go away, go back to your shoddy little life, or active life, whatever it is, and your mind says, what a marvellous thing that was! I wish I could have that repeated again. So thought perpetuates 
that thing as pleasure. Is that the mechanism? So can then what takes place? You never again see the sunset. Never. Because the remembrance of that original sunset remains. And you always compare with that. And therefore you never again see something totally new. So when asked, can you see that sunset, or the beautiful face, or your sexual experience, or whatever it be, see it and finish it, and not carry it over, whether that thing was great beauty or great sorrow, or great pain, physical, (coughs) psychological, whatever it be. To see the beauty of it and finish, completely finish, not take it over for the next day, for the next month (coughs) or the future, store it up. If you do stir it up, then thought plays with it. Thought is the storing up of that incident, or that pain, or that suffering, or that thing that gave delight. So, how is one to not prevent, to be aware of this whole process and not let thought come into operation at all. You, you understood my question? Am I making myself clear? Am I just going on by myself? Because I want to see the sunset, I want to look at the trees and, the, and the, you know, full of the beauty of the earth. It's not my earth or your earth, it's the earth, ours, not the Englishman's earth <laughs> or the Russian or the Indian. It's our earth to live in, without the frontiers, without all the ugly, beastly wars and mischief of man. I want to look at all this. The palm trees on a solitary hill. Have you ever seen it? What marvelous thing it is. Or a single tree in a field. I want to look at it. I want to enjoy it. But I don't want to reduce it into an ugly little pleasure 
and thought will reduce it. So how can thought function when necessary and not function at all in other directions? You you follow my questions? And it is possible only when there is real awareness, awareness of this whole mechanism. mechanism of thought, the structure and the nature of thought, where it must function absolutely logically, healthily, not neurotically or personally, and where it has no place at all. So what is beauty and thought? Can the intellect ever perceive beauty? It may describe, it may imitate, it may copy, it may do all kinds of things, but the description is not the described. Oh Lord, we can go on into this infinitely. So, when one understands this nature of pleasure and the principle of pleasure, then what is love? Is love jealousy? Is love possessiveness? Is love domination, attachment? You know what one does in life? The woman dominates the man, or the man dominates the woman. You know, all that business goes on. The man does something because he wants to do it, pursues it. He's ambitious, greedy, envy, he wants a position, prestige. And the wife says, for God's sake, stop all that tummy rot, lead a different kind of life. And so there is a division between the two. They may sleep together. So, can there be love when there is ambition? Yes, I'll go on to it. And when each one is pursuing his own particular private pleasures, so what is love? Obviously, it can only be come. It can only it can only happen when there is all these things that are not love like ambition, competition, wanting to be somebody, becoming somebody. Hmm. 
And that is, you follow, that's our life. We want to be somebody, famous, fulfill, become, you know, writer, artist, bigger. All that's what we want. And can such a man or a woman know what love is? Which means, can there be love for a man who is working for himself, not only in a little way, but you know, identifying himself with the state, with God, with social activity, with, with the country, with a series of beliefs? Obviously not. And yet that is the trap in which we are caught. And can we be aware of that trap? Really aware, not because somebody describes it, be aware of the trap in which you are caught and break the trap. And that's where the revolution is, the real revolution, not the phony revolution of bombs and social changes, though the social changes are necessary, not the bombs. One discovers or one comes upon unknowingly, without inviting it, this thing called love and the other thing is not. When we have really understood the nature of pleasure, how thought destroys the thing that was a great joy, because joy cannot possibly be made into pleasure. Joy comes, it happens, like happiness, it comes. But the moment you are aware, oh, I am very happy, then you are no longer happy. Then what is love in human relationship? Understand all these questions. What is such? What is the place of such love in human relationship? Has it any place at all? And yet we have to live together. We have to cooperate together. We have to have children together. And a man who loves, can his son be sent to war? That's your problem, sirs. You have children, and your education is preparing the children for war, to kill.
you find out. So what is that love and what is its relationship in our human existence? I think that question can only be answered, not verbally or intellectually, can only have the true answer when the whole principle of pleasure and thought and this becoming is understood. Then you will find it has totally different kind of relationship. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in New Delhi in 1966, titled, Is Sex a Problem? The questioner says, music, art, literature and so on have slightly modified the central issue, which is the drive, the urge, the demand for sex. You know, it's one of the most complicated problems, like every human problem, that is deviling the world. You understand? It's right through the world this problem exists. Why? It is as though for the first time human beings have discovered sex. Right? (laughs) You understand? as though something very strange thing, and they want to have complete enjoyment of it, and make a tremendous issue about it. Why? <coughs> now let's examine it. I am not telling you what to do. <laughs> that would be so utterly immature, childish and will reduce you to be immature and childish, too. So we are going to examine things. To examine, you must be free to look. You understand? So you can't have prejudices. You can't say, oh, sex is sinful. Sex must be controlled, this and that. So to look, you must be free from your prejudice and opinion. not only with regard to this, but with regard to every issue in life, with regard to your politician, with regard to the scientists, with regard to your newspapers, with regard to your sacred books, everything to observe, to learn, there must be freedom. Now, why has it become a problem? Huh? <laughs> Are you listening to me, sirs? Are you waiting for me to tell you? Yes? Why? Why has it become a problem to you? That I don't know how many there are, you can't all of you answer at once. 
So please don't. Why has it become a problem? Look, first of all, intellectually, you function within a pattern, right? Intellectually, you have drawn a line, a boundary, and within that you function. And that boundary, the space is very small, right? You don't question your leaders, political, religious, intellectually. You don't doubt, you don't say, what the do you mean by this? You have accepted them as authority and function intellectually in that little frame, right? Therefore what has happened? You have blocked yourself off, haven't you? Right? Intellectually you have cut yourself off, you have cut away, you don't think in the freely. Not that there is any free, free thinking, there is no such thing, but intellectually you are crippled, right? Look what's happened through the world, so here in this country. Art, music, literature is at its very lowest ebb. Because you, are, you have accepted tradition and you repeat, repeat, repeat. So intellectually you have made yourself small, narrow, so you have no release through intellect, right? Release, not through fulfilment, I don't mean that, to, to think clearly, not to be afraid to say what you want to say, even though society may threaten you to put in prison or burn you, to, to stand by what you think. And that you don't do. So intellectually you are dead, right? This is a fact. You may function a little bit, learn new technology, become a marvellous administrator, marvellous engineer, but that is not active. That's merely repetition. So intellectually you have cut the flow of the mind, right? So then emotionally what has happened? You know, to be, to be sensitive, to be alive to trees, to poverty, to dirt, to squalor, you don't even notice all that, right? To beauty, sir, you understand, to look at the stars, to feel, to feel the leaf, to look at the poverty, to see a poor child with fat tummy, you don't look, you don't feel, you don't cry. You have become callous. And this is right through the world, not only here. And when you do feel, you become sentimental. You become devotional to some idiotic um, picture or a statue. 
You rush to temple when you've got a headache. Give your jewels, give all that. So, emotionally too, you're starved, empty. Physically, look at yourselves, what we have made of ourselves. Overeating, overindulging, not having enough exercise and all the rest of it. Physically one has become flabby. So when you shut off the movement of the mind, when you throttle down, destroy, become callous, inwardly, emotionally, to have no feeling, no consideration, no kindliness. You talk about it, but you never stand for it. You never treat your servants, your children. So what happens? You have only one thing left, which is sex. And nothing else. And that you have indulged, though all your saints have said, don't, don't, don't look at a woman and she's a disease, she's your sister, she's your mother, she's illusion, you know, all the tricks you play with it. But yet you go on with this thing that becomes a terrific problem. Because all round you have become insensitive. Please see this, suffer yourself, then you will do something. Then it should, then it will be no longer a problem. And also at that moment probably you are not, there is a total absence of yourself. And you want that repetition of that state of mind when there is no worry, no, no problem, when you are totally unaware of yourself. That's what sex gives you for that time being. And then you are back again to your turmoil. So, when you shut off all the movement of life, all affection, all kindliness, consideration, looking at nature, looking at trees, flowers, thinking clearly, when you have none of those things, you have only one thing left, like the peasant in the village, what has he? He has nothing, no beauty, but work, 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 and the everlasting sunshine, burning his body and his soul away, what has he left? He has got one thing left, sex, therefore he has dozens of children. That's his only pleasure. <coughs> and that too you deny him. That too you deny through your sacred books. Because they see all these examples of these shallow, empty sannyasis who have run away from life. So to renounce the world is to understand the world, not to run away from it. To understand it you must look, you must, you must see very clearly 
and when you see clearly you love and when there is no love in your heart as you have no love in your heart at all you may talk about it when you have no love in your heart you have only one thing left which is pleasure and that pleasure is sex and therefore it becomes a mountainous problem so to resolve it to understand it begins to free the mind don't be afraid your human beings not driven cattle then out of that freedom comes a beauty in everything and nothing becomes a problem The final extract in this episode is from the second small group discussion at Brockwood Park in 1978 titled Non-Identification with Sex. Can I, as a human being, living in this tremendously ugly, brutal, violent world, economically, socially, morally, all the rest of it, live without this? I want to find out. And I want to find out, not as an idea, I want to do it, it's my passion. Then I begin to inquire, why do I, why is there identification with the form, with the name? Why should the word? It's not very important whether you're K or W or Y. So you go, you examine this very, very, very carefully, not to identify with your, yourself with any, identify with sensation, with ideas, with country, with experience. Mm? You understand, sir? Can you do it? Not vaguely and occasionally, but something that you've got to do with passion, with intensity, to find out. That means <coughs> I must put everything in its right place. Because I live, I have food. I don't have to identify myself with my, this or that food. I eat the correct food and it's finished. Therefore, it's the right place. So, but there is all the bodily demands. Sex. Put it in its right place. <coughs> Who will tell me to put it in the right place? You understand? My guru, the Pope, any scripture, if they do, <coughs> I identify myself with them because they are giving me help to put things in the right place, which is sheer nonsense. 
The Pope can't tell me sex has its right place. And he said, don't divorce, marry, your marriage with God, all that. And I'm stuck. Why should I obey the Pope? Or the Guru, or scriptures, or <coughs> the politicians. So I have to find out what is the right place for sex or money. Right, sir? What's the right place? How shall I find out <coughs> what is the right place for sex, which is one of the most powerful, urgent, physical demand, which the religious people say, cut, destroy it, right, sir? Suppress it. Take a vow against it, and know all the rest of it. I say, sorry, that doesn't mean anything to me. So I want to find out what is its right place. How shall I find out? I've got the key to it, right? Which is non-identification with sensation. That's the key of Right, sir? So non-identification with sensation, which is translated in modern experience. I must experience sex. So that is identifying with oneself, identification with sensation makes the self. So is it possible not to identify with sensations? Yes, sensations. I have, I have, I'm hungry. Hmm? Right? But sex is a little more powerful. So I've, I've, I've got the key to it, you the, the truth of it. Right, sir? So, yes, I'm, I feel sexual. All right. <laughs> Non-identification. That is the truth of it. If I really see the truth of it, then sex, money, everything is right, please. 